Welcome to the Sober Podcast, part of the Soberverse, created by the team at the Sober Network. The Sober Network has engaged in revolutionizing the treatment industry by creating its own token economy. We offer fresh ideas to an industry that has relied on dated interventions. We are responsive to a new generation of substance users who are attached to their phones so we can impact massive social change. Our unmatched technology displays solutions of our various brands, demonstrating a thorough understanding of how we get things done. We are proving that technology, along with incentivized human accountability, provides measurable and positive outcomes. Visit us at SoberNetwork.com. Welcome to the Sober Podcast, part of the Soberverse, brought to you by the Sober Network. Today we have Dr. Joe Millisets on with us, joining us from Delray Beach, and we're going to be talking about sex and sex addiction, two right. big topics. Welcome, welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you. So, Dr. Joe, a lot of things that people need to know. Where would we even begin to start to educate <laughs> listeners on sex addiction? Well... It's it's very interesting in that you have many schools of thought about sex addiction, okay? In the mental health field, according to the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, which is the manual for psychiatric disorders, it's the Bible, sexual addiction is not in there anymore. No such phrase as sexual addiction. Matter of fact, there's really not much addressing sexual behavior at all. They felt in the latest version that it more comes under anxiety disorders, maybe compulsive disorders, but they felt very leery of putting any kind of sexual dysfunction in it because the feeling is Sexuality is a wide range of a topic. And who's to say what's normal and what's abnormal? Once you start putting labels on sexual behavior, you run the danger of labeling people. That is true. So as a licensed mental health professional professional and a doctor of sexology, uh, I'm in a big quandary about the recovering community with obviously SLA A and SA, which are 12-step programs to address compulsive sexual behavior and 
the psychiatric community, which looks at it as, again, as more likely an anxiety disorder or, as a, or a compulsive disorder, referring to using it as a coping mechanism. So when I see clients in my private practice, I don't know where they're coming from in viewing their own sexuality. So I reserve judgment and choose instead to meet the client where they're at and help them identify difficulties with their sexual behavior. This way, I'm not standing in judgment and I'm not standing in a diagnosis because there is none. And I let the client identify what their perception of their sexual behaviors. And then I will join them in finding a solution for them. Okay. I like the, I like the orientation. I was about to ask you based on the fact that they took it out of the DSM five, not to ask another therapist, but how do you feel about that? I guess we have an understanding of how yeah. you do. Yeah. Um, well, it is funny. The world, the world health organization, uh, included they've adopted the phrase uh hypersexuality so they kind of went went against the dsm-3 now it's the world health organization which is a nationwide body of professionals medical and psychiatric professionals so um they decided to include hypersexuality as as an identified disorder so how do you see, let's say, again, you have tons of experience in the field. The first, first question I would ask you is, what are some of the misconceptions that people have with sex addiction? Uh, well, probably one of the most common misconceptions is how we judge other people's sexual behavior. I think that's the biggest issue to look at when we're talking about difficulties in treating people is people very easily make judgments up about people's sexual behavior based off their orientation. Now, if you go back, my, my dissertation was uh, the etiology of sexual desire. One chapter was religiosity. Now, Oftentimes, people base their views and their judgments about sex based on what they're taught in their particular sure. religious faith. Very much so, sure. So we have the judgment of uh, homosexuality, transgender people, you know, and uh, most people go off their own orientation, not off anything factual. And that's why the psychiatric community had a big problem with it, because they didn't want to buy into that part of the ideology of, of sexual behavior. So to tell you the truth, with, with alcohol, drugs, any kind of compulsive behavior, if it doesn't come to my attention as a problem somebody's having, then I have no opinion about it. My only responsibility is when people show up in my office, maybe with a family member, maybe by themselves, you know, even AA doesn't propose to make a judgment of who's an alcoholic and not, right? They say, you're going to determine yourself, right. which right. means they had it right from the beginning. 
it's an interesting perspective and I think more people are struggling than ever with these concepts as 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 we can see so th- there's so much info here it's just uh, could go on for hours with this yes let's right. let's start out from uh the baseline for now I don't have to almost right. use a, te- a tennis term but tell us a little bit about who you are what you do and your experience in the field particularly related to this topic because you have year, yeah. you have years under your belt sure yeah so um I became uh, a licensed clinical social worker in 1987. And as a social worker, we always believe in meeting the client where they're at. And and what I like about that is they're going to tell me what their problem is. I'm not going to tell them. What the and to tell you the truth, a lot of clients come to me and say, "So, Doctor Joe, what am I? What do you call this?" I said, "Hey, I don't know. Why don't you tell me what you think it is, and we'll go from there." So, so at the phase in my life now, I'm a big teacher. I have interns. I supervise seven or eight people for their license. So I'm in a teaching phase in my life at six to seven years old, and yeah. one of the biggest difficulties for new therapists to learn is to stop judging people and and making diagnoses without proper information and they they have a hard time and i suppose it's our society where this is that and that's this and when you see that it's that like we're all supposed to know everything so you know i've had interns sitting in my office crying you know from barry university from fau crying because they can't get this well doesn't that client know they just have to do i said that's none of your business what they have to do i said your job is to sit listen take in information feed it back to them this is what you've said this is what you're talking about do you agree with what you've just told me okay let's go from there that's truly meeting them where they're at absolutely my first supervisor said it takes 10 years to build a good therapist. And what she meant by that is the greatest difficulty is for therapists to learn how to shut your mouth and listen to your client. Your client will tell you their problem. They'll tell you how they can be treated. I don't have to think about that and make it up. I'm just here. Client's going to give me all their information. They're going to give me the concerns. They're going to give me the questions. They're going to give me possible ways that they can treat themselves. So in a rate, the older you get, the easier it is to be a therapist because I don't, I don't have to do anything but listen, cooperate, feed them information they shared with me, and get on a path for recovery. Now, the next spot is changing your thoughts and your behavior, which is that's the difficulty. But you know, it's really the client brings the issue to you. And, you know, some of them say, you know, well, you know, this person over here, he goes out drinking this. And I said, listen, he's not in my office. I don't know who he is. I don't know who you're talking about. So I really can't make it because everybody wants me to give their opinion. Whether it's at a wedding or a barbecue, it's like, guys, I, that's not what I do. You know, so it's very interesting. 
I've, yeah. I've always found if you're on an airplane and you tell somebody you're a therapist, it's going to be a very quiet flight. They, oh, it's yes. the only spot where that happens. Yes. Or and a very talkative flight. It'll go either way. <laughs> it can, oh, it can so tell me, I got my wife does this. And, you know, so either way. So I kind of don't say anything until like, well, what exactly do you do? You know, so. Very, I like the very client-centered approach. Exactly. Was there anything in particular that drove you into the field? Everybody's got different, you know, different background. Anything sure. that stand out for you that yeah. you think like, yeah, this certainly was a, an impactful piece to sure. me. Yeah, well, uh, I'm the uh, son of an alcoholic. Uh, There's six children in my family. My father was a garbage man in New York City. And he was an alcoholic who happened to function for almost 30 years as a garbage man for New York City. And he took a second job as a bus driver in the afternoons because he had six children. And uh, as much as he drank, as much as he was emotionally abusive, we never went a day without a meal. We never didn't have clothes for school. You know, maybe not extravagant, but we had enough. You know, so the reality is, despite what you grew up through, you can learn to go through anything. My father's nickname in our neighborhood was Hitler. So, really? friend, so on a Friday night, my friend would say, is Hitler going to let you out tonight? And I say, probably not, because I was punished seven out of every eight weeks, where Friday night I end up listening to the New York Knicks games at 735 with a box of juicy fruits oftentimes crying in my room. So, <laughs> you know. It had an impact. Yeah. And when I was in community college, went through four years of military, went to Nassau Community College on Long Island. Lenore Feinstein, who was the student government advisor, they talked me into becoming student government president, son of an alcoholic, not having any self-esteem, but they kind of said, because I was older, because I was in the military. So I became student government president. She said, Joe, you should be a social worker. No idea what it meant. Uh, so I applied to Adelphi University, five miles away. Very prestigious private school, great social work school known around the country. And I got accepted. Who knew? And uh, my life's been a great journey ever since. So, so wow. based on what I've experienced and where people led me. That's where you go. Okay. That's yeah. a, it make, makes a lot of sense, sure. Yeah. So yeah. you get to Florida. Yeah. Time you get to Florida, Florida is yeah. an interesting place. You've you're yeah. certainly one of the people who has seen the transition over the years in the recovery community, the expansion of the recovery community, right. and certainly the expansion and um, of the treatment community right. and the treatment Absolutely. business. Yes. Tell me, if you can, what are some of the things that you've seen that stand out? Um, particularly, again, you know, you, we, we were, you were talking about SLA before. Right. How you've seen that progress uh, over the time that you've been in, involved in a clinician? Sure. Uh, I, I moved to Florida in 1984. And um, one of my first jobs was at Broward County Addiction Center, the Bark Detox on Broward Boulevard. And that's the end of the line. That's where people go when they have nothing else. Yep. And I worked there and uh, I was there about a year. And then I got a, an opportunity to go to the Cary Union of Cold Springs, the first 
private treatment center in Florida. They had beautiful wings for male and female residential detox. They even had jacuzzi in the backyard because the company came from California. So I guess they had the California vibe. What they're doing with the, with the jacuzzi in a treatment center with men and women. Don't ask me. We all thought it was a bad idea. <laughs> they hadn't thought um, it out apparently. Right. But to tell you the truth, by 1985, which I was here a year, there was already a tremendous AA and NA community down here. Years and years ago, I remember going to a Wednesday night meeting in Oakland Park Boulevard called Progressive Recovery, a narcotics anonymous meal that was packing 100 people every night, minimum. So, so when I got here, believe it or not, the, the 12-step recovery community was huge already, you know. And then, of course, you saw the opening of the private treatment centers, you know, um, which we all gave great efforts. Then there came the patient brokering, the billion-dollar labs. Mm -hmm. So I saw that these our field take a real hit in credibility yep. for almost 20 years. And finally, Dave Annenberg, the Palm Beach Task Force, has finally arrested some people. Some people have gone to jail. They've closed around 20 places, you know, and... With that fraud, the insurance company started to be very critical and they started reimbursing less. So it we're finally coming out of it where we're achieving a norm. But I saw the height of the field, the fall of the field, and now getting back to some kind of normalcy. You know, all the crooks have kind of left the business because you're not making a million dollars in urines anymore. You're not making millions and millions on treatment anymore. Blue Cross, Blue Sheet, all of them had said, we're not giving you $2,000 a day for, for 30 clients you have in treatment. And that's kind of where the fraud started is many people right at brand new in recovery who were perhaps crooks in their addiction just became crooks by owning treatment centers. Not that they all didn't care, but it's kind of the way when there's money to be had, the unscrupulous people will be joining them. So the billions and billions were made. Yep. Now, if you want to own a treatment center, don't think you're going to get risk because you're not going to get rich anymore. You're going to yep. pay the bills. You might make a little bit of a living, but it's not like that anymore. So it's it's been a real roller coaster. You know, in the 80s and early 90s, there was a lot of excitement about recovery and treating it and people getting well, you know, a lot of research done. And uh, hit a low spot, and I think we're coming back. You know, yeah, it's quite. It's been quite a quite a ride. So, yeah. you know, you mentioned before that it did affect the field. Can you elaborate a little bit on. You know, obviously, we're we're more. I, I'd say caught up in the media with, you know, opiates and you know the the stuff with the Sackler family. You know, you can watch American Greed and you. You watch about the you know the pill mills, et cetera. Then there's the Florida shuffle. Yeah. Right. So what get right what gets overlooked in that is sex addiction. Yes. Services. Yes. Can you can you elaborate more on you know what gets missed, what's needed, what you see, and what you know how you yeah. how you come to things? Sure. Well, you know, I'm sure you've heard you heard the saying and the thinking that it's almost chic 
to be in AA these days. You, you go to Hollywood and you go to an AA meeting and Nicolas Cage is there and, you know, uh, but compulsive sexual behavior, programs like SLAA, which is Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, would take, would take some more codependency approach compared, compared to SA, which is Sex Addicts Anonymous, which is purely your sex drive has caused your life to be unmanageable, whichever one you prove, you know. Um, they're not chic to go to. Now, you have some of the latest people like Tiger Woods and some of the other guys who go to a very famous program in Louisiana that's famous for treating sex addiction, but it, it doesn't have the chicness of AA. It's almost acceptable being an alcoholic these days. You still can't walk around saying I'm a sex act. People cringe, you know. Different, sti- different stigma, really. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So where were, you know, Compulsive sexual behavior is where AA was in the probably 50s. And they've gotten over that hump for years. But uh, I don't think compulsive sexual behavior will ever get to the acceptance level of AA in any house. Just because it's just because of judgment about it. You know? I, I would I would imagine that's the case. So in your your history of treating people, what have you seen as the most difficult factors would have really gotten in the way of people getting getting treatment outside of just the straight shame of it? Yeah, well, the shame and the guilt is the driving force because there are a lot of 12-step programs to treat people that are having, that are having difficulty because of their sexual behavior. But the shame and guilt, they can admit it to themselves. But the thought of sitting in a room or being in a Zoom meeting and identifying yourself as a sex addict, that is still, still very difficult and not very easy for most people to say. They, they'd more likely come to a private therapist to talk about it than they would go to 12 7 Now, sometimes in my work with them, a client may realize without me manipulating a prompting, they may come to their own conclusion that I need support in this. I can't do this alone. And I certainly welcome them, you know, when they get to that place where they realize their lives are unmanageable and once a week sitting with therapists for an hour a week isn't doing it. Sure, sure. Okay. So let's take that a little further. You you mentioned your, your dissertation in the etiology. Yes. Um, so this is always, you know, great fodder for the canon. And, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm a therapist, but I'm the son of sure. two uh, Freudian and modern trained psychoanalysts. So right. yes. <laughs> talk about etiology. Let's yeah. let's let's give a little bit of uh, we'll talk about this a little bit before we, we go to a commercial break. OK, sure. What are what are your view things that are overlooked that people just see somehow, despite all the information we have? People aren't getting part of the etiology. Let's yeah. talk about a little bit more about the etiology, if we could. Well, in writing my dissertation, which is the hardest thing I've ever done, anybody with a PhD will admit to that, right? Um, I go through eight different chapters, and I, 
I have to conclude that how, when, and where a person is raised has the greatest influence on their attitudes about sex, period, and down about people's sexuality. That, that's the greatest hurdle that people have to get over because the shame and guilt that, that, that compulsive sexual behavior people have is that of being judged. So I can't admit it. I certainly can't stand up in a meeting and say it. You know, it's, you take AA and times that time 100, and that's the shame and guilt. People that are struggling with, with sexual compulsive behaviors, that's what they're suffering from. You know, you can look at an alcoholic and they're sitting there with you and not drinking. You know, they're pretty okay. You're sitting with somebody who identified have as a sexual compulsive problem. You don't know what they're thinking. You don't know what they're looking at. They're carrying this, they're acting out behavior on them 24-7. I don't have to go anywhere to buy anything to act out sexually. So it builds in a built-in lack of trust for people, for people who struggle sexually. And it's and it's the judgment. It's 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 so ingrained in all of us that a lot of us don't even think about it. You know, and even people who think they're open to sexuality and and you know sexual preference. Oh yeah, well guess what? Little do they know they have their sexual judgments hiding behind them. Multiple sex partner. Oh no, no, I'm open sexually, but not that. It's and we don't even know it because we're so indoctrinated from from a young age that it's so much a part of it. We don't even know we do it. I would, I, that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people don't understand also, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, from your clinical standpoint and, you know, research and everything else, people are just, I think, starting to wake up to how trauma works yes. and, and sexual trauma, how that affects yeah. You know, it's like it's like a shame. I hate to say a shame smorgasbord, right. but that can affect so many things. How have you seen that show up? Let's say, you know, during your career. Sure. Uh, that's that's almost a common thread. OK, that's almost a common thread. Um, and for that matter, when we talk about alcohol use disorder, Opioid use disorder because you know addiction is not in the DSM five for substance either. No such word. It's alcohol use disorder, mild, moderate, severe. It's opioid use disorder, mild, moderate, severe. It's any substance you want. Use disorder. They're simply saying they're just using it. Now the the qualifier or the identifier is identifying the amount of difficulty they have in life, which is mild, moderate and severe. So, so that's the kind of self-measurement we're using these days is how it affects your life. And to tell you the truth, there's a large number of mental health professionals that believe all kinds of compulsive disorders food, eating, sex, gambling, alcohol, and drugs is almost, almost a 100% correlation 
with trauma. It's a big correlation. It is. It is. Yeah, it's yeah. a very, very strong number. Yeah. All right. Well, with that sobering fact, we're going to take a quick break uh, here from our sponsors and we'll be right back with you. Great. Thank you. The Sober Podcast is now part of the Soberverse. It is another innovative solution developed by the Sober Network. The Sober Podcast is giving a voice to recovery. For more information about this and all the other parts of the Soberverse, visit us at thesoberverse.com, thesobernetwork.com, sober.com, sobersystems.com, soberpodcast.com, sobercoin.io, and recoverycoaches.com. Okay, and we are back. We are here with Dr. Joe Millicitz, and we're talking about sex, sex addiction, uh, and a variety of topics. There's just there's just so much material, and I I I've always said I, I don't think there's enough time to really go through just everything. There's so much to this topic. What do you see in terms of conflicts with families? Where do the families struggle? Again, you know, we we kind of know a little bit more about. Let's say on the whole, we're more exposed generally as people, I think, to treatment for, you know, quote, drugs, substances. Right. But this is this is a little different. What do families not understand and what do families struggle with from your clinical experience? Well, they struggle with accepting their loved ones for who they are versus viewing their loved one having a serious problem. And with a family member with a, with a substance use problem, it's pretty clear because you add the substance and the person becomes different. When we talk about sexual behavior, a lot of families struggle with what's normal, what's not normal. Am I putting my own judgment on that? So families have a very difficult time identifying the difficulty with their loved one. Is this normal? Is it just me judging them? And it just gets murky, you know. Um, one thing I'd like to do, if it's okay for you, is to identify some symptoms that seem to be common with most people with a compulsive <coughs> sexual disorder. Fantastic. That's what we're looking Good. for. If that's the place we're looking for. Okay. So now this would say to somebody listening or somebody have a loved one who's involved in hypersexual behavior. Here's some of the common identifiers, like DSM does with every diagnosis. It gives you anywhere from two to three to 10 qualifiers that helps narrow down the diagnosis. So here's some of for hypersexuality or compulsive sexual disorder. Uh, number one, a person would have re recurrent intense sexual fantasies, urges, and behaviors that consistently interfere, interfere with other activities and obligations. So I've contended for many years, the qualifier for any kind of compulsive behavior is when it interferes with normal function. That's when it tells the person and the loved ones, the employer, anybody about that person 
why they're struggling and what is a struggle and what is not a struggle, you know? So is it interfering with their lives? And I always say to people, look, people don't come sit in my office because they have nothing better to do today. They come to my office mainly because something in their life is not working for them. Something's interfering. Right? Right. If If someone's compulsively drinking alcohol, but they don't see it as a problem and they don't have any consequence and it's not a function of functioning. It's not a big, it's not my business. Oh, but my brother's an alcoholic. I'm telling, well, I don't know that, you know, I think that's for your brother to decide. So second was behaviors occur in response to disorder mood. Now here's, here's what the psychiatric community is pointing to and not giving sexual addiction. The diagnosis is they say it's more likely a response to anxiety, depression, boredom, irritability, or stressful life events. So what they're saying, it's really the events in a person's life that drives the behavior. So what they're saying is treat that behavior, treat those symptoms, and the behavior is likely to go away. And it's as a therapist, it's hard to argue with that. You relieve the symptoms of anxiety, depression, boredom, irritability, low self-esteem, trauma. You relieve the symptoms and the disorder might very well go away or at least be manageable. Uh, Engage in sexual behavior while disregarding the physical or emotional harm to others. So I'm so intent on satisfying my sexual fantasy or desire that I don't really care how you think. And if you look at alcoholism, you know, drinking when you know it's going to hurt people, but you don't care. You drink anyway. So that's a common thread. All the compulsive behaviors have that common thread. And again, the word is distress or impairment. When any of your behaviors called distress, cause you to be distressed or impaired in your life where you can't go to work, you can't function, you can't be a father. You know, and there's been a big debate over marijuana, correct? In the last 30 or 40 years. Pretty big debate, yes. Yeah, so so you, you got person A, well, I just like to smoke weed. Okay, so let's look at your life. You go to work, you go home, Oh, I got a one one. You smoke a joint. You put. You sit in the recliner. You're not out. You're a zombie, and you've got children sitting there who want to play with that, but you're too high. Is that affecting the quality of life of this family? The child who grows up with a father who's stoned every night when he gets home, and eats like a maniac, and then pretty much just a zombie on the recliner. How is that young? son or daughter going to feel about themselves in relation to the parent. Yeah. They're going to Great. feel that they're not important. Great point. You know, and dad, years later, well, dad, you're already stoned. You weren't there. You didn't play with us. And all of a sudden it hits the guy. Wow. I wasn't available for my kids. You know? Well, well, well said. I think people underestimate the, the point about if your emotional availability is affected or and or some combination with your physical avail- availability, 
that's what children remember. That's yeah. what they take. You know, their self-esteem right. is built on right physical presence. Yeah. And they internalize everything. So if you're not playing with me, I must not be important enough. Great so point. that's a great point. Talking. Yeah. So psychology, uh, probably 30, 40 years ago, the, only, the, the best the APA came up with for a diet uh, for what affects you using marijuana, you know, they came out with a motivational syndrome. You know, a $20 word that says when you smoke pot, you're lazy and you don't get shit done. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a close way. Well, what's good? You know, a kid sitting in 1920, what's it doing to me? I'm not bothering anybody. Okay. Well, when you're 25, that's all I, um, I don't know if you remember some of the uh, drug free commercials that the government sponsored. Sure. One was this 30 something year old guy who's with his buddy smoking a joint, and here comes mom in the house. And he, opened, he said, open the window, and he's blowing the smoke out. Jan, did you look for a job today? No, Ma. And right. like I said a little, in the 30-second commercial, like, you smoke pot, you don't do shit. So the, uh, John's at home, 35, still not looking for a job, looking to get someone every day. That's his, that's his motivation for the day. So, yeah. yeah. What, do you, what do you make of the idea, idea clinic, the clinical perspective, one thing that we, we might see, I think, as clinicians is that some people have difficulty having sexual sexual relations when a substance is not present. Right. Yeah. How would you explain that piece? Uh, that's that's shame, guilt and low self-esteem. I have to use something to. Presumably calm me down or put me in the mood when it really is you can't handle reality. You can't handle intimacy. Right. So uh, there was a book uh, probably about 10 years ago now. Very interesting book. The title was Addiction as an Attachment Disorder. So we've been studying bipolar and manic depressive for years and years. In the lab, in behavior, in chemicals. And what many experts start to look at is when there is an incomplete bonding with an infant, with an adult, that incomplete bonding never takes place. That human being never feels connected to anything or anyone for the rest of the lives until they're treated. Right. Right. Well said. Yeah. So it really disconnected. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really disconnected. Let's, yeah. let's, let's take that a little further. Uh, time we've got left because there's, there's again there's just so much material here. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we know about recovery programs, right? It, we know we know about treatment programs. We know about recovery. Right. And one of the suggestions, without fail, if if I had to name the number yeah. one suggestion of treatment that's not followed, right. it would have to be, from my perspective, yeah. stay out of a relationship for the first year of sobriety. Okay, psychologically speaking. Why is that recommendation made? Well, it's kind of an oxymoron because I believe the exact antidote for compulsive behaviors of any type is a relationship. 
Why do you think the 12 step programs have been successful 100 years? It's not because of corporate structure. It's not because of the board of directors. It's because what happens when you commit yourself to a 12 step program is you actually commit to having relationships. The exact thing you've never felt in your life. The exact thing that attachment disorder seeks to heal. So, so, and healthy connections. Yeah. So, out of relationship for a year, I, 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 for me, that's misunderstood because without relationships, you're not going to get sober. Now, the problem with relationships early in recovery, it just becomes another addiction. Well, I won't go to the meeting tonight. Me and Betty are going to have some dinner and watch Netflix. So, and next thing you know, the two people that met in recovery have dropped their recovery program. So I'm saying it's not the relationship that causes that. It's the people losing sight of their priority of recovery and relationship. Yeah. And it just look so it's easy to look at the relationship and say, well, he got in a relationship and he relapsed. Well, no. How about he got in a relationship, he stopped focusing on his program and meeting other men and learning how to have real relations with people. And he hit out in another compulsive behavior, which is a relationship with another person. So I hope that clears it up a little. It's, it's, it's very difficult. But the, the people who come to treatment and don't get sponsors and don't want to ask that person, they rarely recover because they are still full of shame and trauma. They don't even believe they're capable of having a relationship with another human being. Sure. But sure. if they just get that sponsor, I say, look, go get a number. He or she, when you hear a guy or girl share in a meeting and you find yourself saying they got their shit together, go up and ask them for a number. Don't do anything else. I'm not saying you have to go work for stuff. Just get a number. Now, call them every night. And, and some people, it's hard to do that. But if you can get them to do that, they're on the way starting a relationship, whether they know it or not. And sponsors are wonderful. Hey, what about a pickup Wednesday night? Take it to Starbucks and we'll go to a meet. That's that's the most helpful thing. That's the most helpful way to, to give it away to keep it. To take a yep. guy, a girl, whether they're 20 or 65, to take them for a cup of coffee, take them to a meeting, and just say, I'm here for you. That's tremendous. Yeah, tremendous. Giving it, giving it of yourself and giving it out. Yeah, that's Absolutely. it's really, really a, a cornerstone. Yes. Tell me a little bit more about what practice looks like and everything that you're doing, the whole scope of Dr. Joe at this point in, in your career. Yeah, well, you know, again, being 67 years old, I see myself as a teacher and and I have three or four interns coming on board at this at Harmony Healing Center. I am supervising seven postgraduates who need two years of supervision. So I've got a good 10 to 15 people in my life who are learning from me. And that's what I love doing right now. Um, Fantastic. I've molded my career in the last 27 years on Albert Ellis with rational motor behavior therapy. It fits with the 12 steps. It fits with the Bible. It fits with any belief you want to have. RBT 
totally fits. And the, the premise is change your thinking, change your beliefs, and your behavior will change. Well said. Yeah. So if you had to give one or two really bottom line salient points that you'd want a family to know, what might you are? I mean, there probably be, could be 20, but can yeah, you articulate sure. a few that you might sure. want to tell somebody like yeah. this might shift them? Sure. Well, one of the um, one of the most impactful YouTube video I watched was one called Rat Park. And this gentleman explored addiction and treatment around the world. And what he concluded is what addicts need is love. How do we approach it? Well, we got 10 people in the room and we read letters and we threaten that if you don't go to treatment, we're all cutting you off. He says, we do the exact opposite with addicts. They need to be loved. Even though it's hard to love them. You don't enable them, but love them. When people are hurting, when people are acting out, it's easy to look at them and they can turn us off and we can be disgusted by their behavior. But what they really are doing is screaming, saying, help me. They just don't know how to do it. So if we could, what does AA do? What does NA do? We love you when you don't love yourself. Until we love you until you learn to love yourself. Come on, that's it. Bill W. Dr. Bob had it. Way back then. No judgment, no religion. Except them for where they are. And still, and it's still working. It's still working, but the difficult time for people is to make a commitment to start a relationship. It's still Making a commitment. They're full of fear. They're full of uh, shame. They're full of guilt, and they don't really think they can do it. I was talking to a client today. First of all, he didn't know he had trauma his whole life. His father would make him write out his homework. And if he got it wrong, his father would slap him in the face. And years it went on. And, and he watched his father and brother beat the shit out of each other like once a month. And I said, do you realize how much trauma you've grown up with? He said, wow, never looked at it that way. I said, yeah, you're traumatized. And trauma gives us a feeling that we are separate from the world. There's the world, everyone, and here's me. Why would anybody want me? I'm not worthy to anybody. I'm no use to anybody. And I'm all by myself. Whether it's compulsive sexual behavior, whether it's alcohol and drugs, whether it's food addiction, compulsive food addiction. You know, it's, it's the answer to it all is relationships. It may sound easy. But it is. You start a relationship with somebody, you're going to start perhaps liking yourself a little bit. Yeah. And that's the beginning of it. That's fabulous. We're going to end almost on that note. How can our okay. listeners get in touch with you if they want to reach out to you? Uh, my website is drjoboca.com. And my office number for Boca Counseling Center, which has been around for 30 years, is 561-620-9797. Those are two great ways to reach me. 
Fantastic. We really appreciate you coming on and giving us some of your insights over these many, many years. You've been at this and helping others and helping uh, the next uh, crew of uh, interns coming in. So uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, for the Sober Podcast, on behalf of the Soberverse and Sober Network, I'm Jason Ross here with Dr. Joe Milsets, and we'll see you and listen to you and hear you all uh, be back with you in about another week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Sober Podcast. We hope it has been as good for you as it was for us. Please share our show with all of your friends, family, acquaintances, and future encounters so that we can grow our show and make our mission a larger reality. We have a growing social media presence on all platforms, so find us and like us, especially Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are listed on all the major podcast directories, such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and more. Thank you all who make this show happen. Howie, our host, Carrie, our producer, and our sponsor, The Sober Network. 